This week's episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Vodafone Comedy Festival, July 28th to 31st in Dublin's beautiful Ivy Gardens. There are 80 acts appearing at the festival this year, but only one of which was my uh, next door neighbour briefly in Dublin, and that man is Damien Clark. Uh, Damien and I used to live on the same floor, uh, second floor in an apartment uh, building on Baggett Street and uh, Damo used to climb up onto the roof above my apartment uh, to sit down and uh, write on a regular basis and one day he cut, he sort of cut the Batman symbol out of his uh, pad and uh, blue tacked it to my skylight so that when the sun shone in uh, the bat symbol would appear on my wall and yeah he just did that just to make me giggle so, uh, you know, if he's that funny in just normal neighbourly life, imagine how funny he is in his professional capacity as an onstage comedian at a festival like the Vodafone Comedy Festival. Yeah? Tickets for the festival are on sale now at VodafoneComedy.com. That's the ad, and now here's the show. Welcome to episode 20 of the Weekly General Meeting podcast, which is a podcast all about creativity. Uh, Just a heads up on the top of this episode, this week we have quite a bit of coarse language and adult themes, so if you have any children listening to this podcast, now would be a good time to pause it and ask them to do some other stuff. Um, Maybe they should be doing, I I just can't imagine that any children would find this this podcast in general in any way interesting yeah I don't think generally children do things by choice when they're adults are doing the things that they want to do do you get what I mean yeah like let's go shopping not really okay well I guess that's fair if you happen to have this podcast in uh, earshot of a child now would be the time to get the earshot a little bit further further more distance to the earshot (laughs) more yeah Um, but this week's podcast has a theme the theme is my body Um, And each of the performers have uh, contributed some work on that theme. Uh, And it's a mixture of recordings from Dublin and London, uh, from the launch of the latest series of the Weekly General Meeting podcast and from our shows in the 100 Club uh, last year. Um, Yeah, Shane, did I miss anything there? No, no, no. We've got some some wonderful... It's really good. It's really good. And we've got some, some really good music, some comedy... Some um, essays and some uh, some storytelling and, and uh, yeah, I think this is a really. I think it's a really good episode. It's one of I'm the best. Ex- I'm excited to hearing it. Now the first guest that it's we have, it is a sentence. Well, it's a bad um, sentence. I'm excited to hearing it. <laughs> we can talk about it afterwards. Um, <laughs> our first guest is. A you got somewhere you need to be. <laughs> God. Our first guest has a much better grasp of the English language than either of us and is funnier, to be fair, objectively, than either of us. Uh, Edwin Salmon is a comedian and a very good one at that. Um, In this piece, this extract, uh, you'll hear him talking about drugs, i.e. things that we do with our bodies, with drugs. It's a way to abuse your body. Sure is. And that's why it's in this show, the body episodes. Roll it, Jane. Okay. All right, how you doing? All right, love. All right, love, where are you from? There's a warm-up. Oh, this is attached to the... So wherever I go, it comes with me. Fair enough, just like me balls. Because um, they haven't invented detachable ones yet. Uh, but we'll get to that at the end. So, um, everyone's going, oh, he's going to talk about balls at the end. Um, yes, I am. Uh, I have to keep talking, because if I stop, I'll collapse, because I was at Body and Soul. So I did uh, the appropriate thing that you do at festivals. I took drugs uh, because taking drugs at a festival is very, very appropriate. Uh, You know, because 99% of the time, if you take drugs, you have to act normal, which takes all of the joy out of being on drugs, just acting normal and going to the shops, uh, spending... An hour standing in the, uh, you know, uh, cereal aisle looking at choco balls and choco flakes and going, what do I want? Do I want balls or flakes? I am, a, am I in a choco ball mood or a flaky mood? I know I want choco, but what form will the choco take? 
Who knows, maybe I should walk back to the yogurts for 20 minutes. So you lose track of time, basically. And I did see some people. I saw you, uh, good sir, but I didn't go over to you because it was Sunday night and I didn't know, I hadn't caught my reflection anywhere. I had a, you know, you go around and you're like, I really hope I don't see my reflection in something because I'll probably scare myself. Um, but there was a lot of oomt, oomt, oomt going on, uh, which is just people walking around going oomt, oomt, oomt. Um, So I followed them thinking there was some kind of mobile stage, but uh, it worked. But uh, the drugs were good uh, and uh, plentiful. And uh, no, I, d I didn't really drink that much because people do drink, I'm drinking now. That's the most popular drug. That's the, you know, that's the legal one. That's where they did all the research. They did the test. They found out, well, this is good. This hasn't harmed anyone. We legalize this and everything will be hunky-dory. Uh, and I haven't checked the figures, but as far as I'm concerned, it's never harmed anyone. So uh, <laughs> that's why they legalized it. Although I do find it strange when people, you always know when someone's really, really, really drunk because they're completely in denial as to how drunk they are. And, you know, but it's okay. It's legal. It's okay to be drunk. They've legalized it. You don't have to be ashamed. People are putting photos of drink on social media all the time to, you know, exactly, to boast about how, <laughs> what they're drinking and how much of it that they're quaffing at that particular time. But you'll always know when someone's really, really drunk because they'll start arguing with you and you're a complete stranger to them. First off, you don't know who they are, and they're going, excuse me now, excuse me. And you look at them, and 99% of their energy is spent on standing up and looking at you. <laughs> it's just this kind of... And they're going, excuse me now, I'm really, I'm really not that drunk, I swear to you. Hush your lips now, puppy. <laughs> what? All that I have had to, everything's a proclamation. All that I have had to drink tonight, very much. <laughs> what? Shh. All that I've had to drink, I have only had two small boxes of wine. <laughs> they barely come up to my knees. And it's Chilean wine, and that doesn't really get you that drunk. Does it, Francis? Where's he gone? Oh, I thought I was in there. Um, <laughs> is what happens. I like uh, marijuana personally. Uh, I think that's a great drug because uh, it's the one drug that you can have a problem with and it's fine. You know, any other drug, if you have a problem with cocaine, you'll find that your septum and personality are eroding at an alarming rate. <laughs> and you're most likely probably a wanker in the first place. So you don't have much of a personality to lose. So you are threading a dangerous and literal line when you do cocaine. So I wouldn't do that, but like marijuana, I realized I had a problem with marijuana when I, I, I couldn't decipher whether I was genuinely enjoying Top Gear or ironically enjoying Top Gear. Do I find this fat cunt's antics amusing? I... Oh man, I gotta stop this shit. But I do. See, the problem is, you, when you... Uh, hey! Yay. Freedom, I won't let you down. The, we've started now. The problem is, when you, when you do drugs, you start, you start a, a battle in your brain between the half of your brain that's on drugs and the normal half. And the part that's on drugs is trying to freak out the normal half of your brain the whole time. And you, sh you shouldn't listen to it, but you can't help it because it's your brain and it's in your head and you can't get rid of it. And I was stoned out of my tree at a bus stop by myself and I had a little bit of weed in my bag and I was standing across the road from a cop shop where we sell cops. And there was a, it was a two for one deal on Sergeant Majors, but I just didn't have enough time or money, and I was too afraid. And my, my drug brain was going, they can smell it, they can smell it from across the road and inside the building. They've got noses like bloodhounds. They're super cops. And I was like, shut up, that's nonsense. I'm fine, I'm grand. I just, I don't know what to do with my arms. That's the only problem I have at this point. I, what do I normally do with my arms at a bus stop? What's the situation here? Oh, oh look, there's, the, oh, there's, a, there's a bus stop. Just lean against the bus stop. There you go, now. Now you're just a regular guy, just leaning at a bus stop. You're leaning a bit too weird now. You're kind of, you're sort of bent over now. You're, pretend you're looking for something on the ground. There you go. You've found it. Who are you showing it to? There's nobody here. 
put your hands in the pockets. Here's the bus. Get on it as per usual. And I did. But I did, uh, I've tried uh, mushrooms. They're good. Uh, do those, because they're natural and they digest and go through you. And uh, although acid is better because, you know, you get flashbacks, so it's better value, but... Uh, <laughs> so hopefully in a few years that'll happen. Because I did try acid for a laugh, because uh, I thought I was going to die. So uh, I had cancer and I wanted to try acid because I'd never tried it. So I did it with a friend of mine and we planned it out. We said, right, will you come down and uh, we'll go to Burr Castle where I come from. There's a lovely castle with lakes and beautiful nature. We'll take the acid and we'll go for a walk and it'll be a great laugh. So we took the acid and then 40 minutes later we got to the place because once you take it, uh, you sort of get distracted and we had to make sure the TV was turned off and uh, my pants were still on. And then I, I better go check the moss to grass ratio on the front lawn again. Because I was very concerned about that. Uh, and then we got to the place and uh, I realized we walked in, there was someone at a desk and we had to go up and ask for two tickets, please. Two, two tickets, please. Oh no, I don't know if I can do this. It's only three words, but I'd rather, I would rather have memorized all of Shakespeare's works in Klingon and recite them in a sing-songy voice than ask for two tickets, please. And my drug brain started freaking my normal side of my brain out and going, you're on drugs and everyone knows you're on drugs and they're all looking at you and they want to take your pants off. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> Especially the pants line. So I, <laughs> I looked at my friend to see who he was and he was just going, ooh, it's all sticky. <laughs> and I thought, right, there's no wall there, so that's alarming. <laughs> but here we go, no distractions. Oh, ice creams. So we went over and we got two 99s. <laughs> And I handed them to my friend and he held them in his hands and stared at them as if the power of his mind was stopping them from melting. <laughs> and so he was okay. So I said, right, here we go. <clears throat> and I was starting to freak out and I went into the toilets and you do, you make stupid decisions when you're on drugs. And I went into the toilets and I took a picture of my face on my phone and I'm zooming in on my eyes in the picture to see if I look like a, and there's a mirror right there. <laughs> I don't trust that guy. So I'm going, okay, you're fine. You look okay, you're fine, grand, no problem. So I walked up, I said, two tickets, please. No problem, no problem, two tickets, please. And I walked up, and just before I asked for two tickets, please, I had a brainwave. But my brain was on drugs. So I said, two normal people, please. <laughs> yes, that's brilliant. Nobody on drugs would ever, ever describe themselves as normal. I think I've gotten away with it, although he is giving me a very weird look. I better slip it in again. Have a normal day. <laughs> and then we walked home with the ice creams. I didn't even want to eat. You don't want to eat when you're on drugs. It's like, we're walking around with the ice creams and we're like, oh, it's dripping down. <laughs> oh, fine. Oh, it's happening again. <laughs> and we were walking around like some sort of homeless Statue of Liberty or some sort of, or some, some poor Olympic runner that got lost between cities uh, with the torch and couldn't find. And then I just realized, oh, I could just fucking drop it on the ground. Because <laughs> I was worried about littering. And then a bird edit, and we watched that. And then, uh, and then I couldn't tell whether, I, whether it was wearing off or I was, because I was sitting down at a lake house looking out and I was looking at all the trees and bushes and grass and everything. And I just went, oh my God. I'm subtly changing the tones of green and all of the... Oh, wait, no, the sun's just coming in and out of the clouds. Oh, uh, okay. So then we smoked a joint and watched Top Gear. And it was all good. Uh, in honor of Father's Day, I want to tell a quick story about my father. Because I noticed everyone putting up stuff on Facebook saying pictures of their father and going, to the best dad in the world. And I just thought, none of these people's fathers are on Facebook. They can't see this. What is this for? This cult of me must end. Everyone wanted to like, like, like. But uh, my dad is not on Facebook. My mum is. Uh, so maybe Mother's Day I'll put a picture of her up. But uh, my dad's kind of, he's got, he, he gets mad about the weirdest things. He got pissed off one time because of a Late Late Show quiz answer. You know on the Late Late Show they have a quiz and they have three options and one of them is a really silly option. And, you know, they put, I always put a silly option up there. And the, the question was, who is the Republic of Ireland manager? Is it A, Martin O'Neill, B, Martin King, or C, Martin Luther King? <laughs> and my dad was pissed off 
because they used Martin Luther King's name in a quiz and his family would be upset if they saw that. <laughs> the poor man was assassinated all those years ago and now they're dishonoring his name by having him as a joke option in a quiz on The Late Late Show. So he's an odd fellow. And my mother last week had uh, neck surgery because her vertebrae was all fucked, so she had to have like a plate in her neck. So I bought her uh, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein <laughs> as an ironic present. It's a good book. Uh, and my dad, like in the lead up to it, my dad was giving out to her and saying, yeah, you've, you've fucked your neck up now. Do you know what you need to do? You need to stop being surprised by things in your peripheral vision. <laughs> he honestly said that. What? Being surprised by things that you... Like, you can't help that. If you see, uh, you know, a, a dinosaur that's half a man from the waist down, like, if you see a half dinosaur, half naked man with a cock and balls, you know, uh, in your periphery, you're going to go, what the fuck is that? What? You can't help that. What a, what a strange man. Anyway, um, I have to go and collapse uh, and uh, repeal the eighth, and I have to go and collapse and... I say, like, this is my, this is my, like, normally, this is my new thing. I'm going to try and do as much work to repeal the eighth as I can because it's fucking horrible uh, amendment. Everyone out there in internet land. Uh, thanks for listening to me talk about drugs. I assume that you're all really here. Uh, and I'll take it as read. So I'll hand you back to your host and enjoy the rest of the evening. And Edwin is appearing in Couples Counselling, which is a play, comedy play taking place uh, in, as part of the Galway Fringe. And it's happening July 15th to 17th. And my good friend Philippa Dunn is also in that. So lots of funny people. Written by Giles Brody, a friend of the show as well. So no reason to not go see that if you're in Galway uh, in the next week or so. Um, our next guest uh, uh, has been a regular contributor um, to the shows, the live shows and the podcast uh, since we started doing this. She's a fantastic writer, uh, very honest and um, always very interesting and articulate. So um, we're delighted to have her back on the show. Um, when Neil talked about sort of uh, uh, adult themes uh, in the upcoming podcast, this was particularly what he was thinking about. So. Just a reminder of that, Megan will talk about it now in the recording. Um, but uh, yeah, no more to say better than reading that. This is uh, Megan Nolan uh, reading her essay, Bodies Are Places Too. Hi, uh, I'm going to read some work that I wrote very recently. It's very fresh. I just finished it a couple of days ago. And I just wanted to say before I start that I talk about some things that are quite uh, upsetting to hear about for some people, uh, including rape and sexual assault. And I wanted to say that before I started in case anybody feels uncomfortable during it. I want you to feel completely free to leave or to not feel that you have to be polite and stay for it if it does make you feel uncomfortable. I just wanted to say that before I started. Okay. <laughs> uh, so... This is an essay that I wrote, and it's called Bodies Are Places Too. I wake after dreaming of captivity and rape and blood all night, the taste of it still thick in my mouth when I come to, and a handful of the real stuff spreading on the sheet behind me. The dream shakes me. I feel woozy with abstract pain all morning, moving vaguely over my heart like an unburst cloud. A few nights before, in a different country, we were sitting outside an expensive Thai restaurant smoking cigarettes. I was trying to articulate why I am reluctant to write about my rape. Just writing those words makes me feel poisoned and nauseous. Firstly, the my, my rape. Claiming it like that reminds me of sincerity and support groups and healing and crying. Then there's the word itself, which is always stuck in my throat when I try to talk about what happened. It's not just that it upsets people to, and makes them go cross-eyed with a sudden effort of not saying anything wrong. It's not just that the moment you let it out, you begin to disappoint them with your imperfect victimhood. It's also just the wrong word. So martyred, so old-fashioned, so period drama. It's too generic to even approach the things I want to say. 
It makes me think of controversial plot lines on Coronation Street and headlines on Woman's Own. My rape hell. My rape agony. I don't want to write about it because I don't want to use it as a trading card. I don't want to gain 10 bonus feminist points for it. I don't want you to think the work is any better than it is because of it. I feel angry thinking about the careful, sympathetic, sympathetic nodding of heads at that chapter in the Lena Dunham book. I feel angry about cultural prestige. I feel angry at the word survivor, at the shared delusion that there is bravery or choice or action in anything I do in the wake of the event. The way narratives of rape are received seems like a consolation prize. To me, it feels like being told, we cannot put any serious effort into creating a space where this will not happen. There's too much to change, it's too difficult. But we will let you tell your little stories about it afterwards, and these we will take seriously. We will gladly receive your sadness, particularly if you give it to us in physical detail, moment by moment, so we can look on in horrified titillation as we do at car wrecks and photographs of emaciated children. I'm telling all this to somebody I've come to visit, somebody impractical and unavailable I've accidentally fallen a bit in love with. We talk about it for a long time, and he knows just what I mean, and not for the first time with him, I feel the relief of being understood so strongly I could almost cry. A few months earlier, I went to visit him in Copenhagen, and as usual, when I travel alone, I feel better than my ordinary self. Being in an airport is the only time that my identity feels unfinished and subject to change. The only time that the lie of freedom and limitless possibility feels briefly true. This feeling is not without problems. I'm usually in airports to facilitate romantic relationships or to see somebody I want to sleep with. And that this is what gives me a feeling of purpose has not escaped my, my attention. In the departure lounge, I watch a beautiful Scandinavian couple play with their baby. When the woman leaves to get a coffee, the father absent-mindedly draws the baby closer brushes his lips over her scalp, inhaling, stroking her little tummy. His eyes are closed. I think about what it would be like to love without reserve. You can do this with babies who are not yet outside themselves and so tolerate your adoration with either pleasure or indifference. But eventually a child will realize that they have a body. Then the child will come to understand that there are others in the world and there will come a day when you see them react with some private smile to an event in which you had no part and then you will understand that they exist in the world just as individually as you do. We may remember how adults were first able to look right through and into us when we were children, and what an achievement it was when we could first tell a lie. We make the discovery then that not only is reality pliable and up for debate, but also that we are irredeemably alone, that within the territory of ourselves there can be only our own footprints. I only feel real when I'm with him, or with a thousand others before and after him. Emotions and insights become available to me in conversation that I have no access to on my own. I'm finally myself when we are close, laughing, eating, discussing. I enjoy myself, literally enjoy what myself is. And then we leave one another over and over again, and the hours and minutes between seeing him all have the low-thrum wine of a perpetual Sunday night. I'm waiting for something to happen. I'm waiting to, dis to disappear. When I have sex with you, I am briefly what I want to be, which is utterly without a body. When my body exists in service of your pleasure, I no longer have to think about it. When you sleep next to me, even if we're arguing or not touching, the fact that you exist is enough and neutralizes the world to a tolerable degree. What I want is always to be having sex and always to be sleeping beside you, for there to be no life in between these things. I want there to be no moment where I am alone and have to be reminded that I exist. What I want is for you to take my body and do what you want with it, and it doesn't matter if that means loving it or doing unimaginable, unimaginable evil to it, as long as you are willing to take it and we can both agree that it is no longer mine. When I think about what happened to me, I see it cinematically. I don't remember in any meaningful sense what it felt like to be inside my body as it took place. I see it as a second-rate arty film or a harrowing episode of prestige television, something that would have a good think piece written about it in The Guardian the next day. I see the preliminary grappling, the tussling, the growing sense of dread as it becomes slowly clear what will take place. I see it shot in that fashionable style which is to slowly close up on my face 
registering first the panic and resistance, and then the moment I stop struggling and resign myself to what is happening. The camera stays with the moment, uncomfortably, capturing a tear of horrified frustration coming out of one eye. In the end, it was not the physical act of unwanted sex that fucked me up. It was the reiteration that men can literally do whatever they want, and that some of them will. In Copenhagen, I fall a little more in love, even though I'm aware of all the perfectly good reasons not to do so. We eat a lot and drink tiny, expensive coffees, and one day get high and walk through a forest for hours, stopping to play with a rabbit and go on a tire swing, and I laugh so much I'm nearly sick and I feel so lucky. When I fly back home, it's late afternoon and still sunny. I can't yet face the oppressive emptiness of the apartment I live in alone. So I buy a bottle of beer and go to the canal to read. I don't have anything to open the bottle with, but I've seen people use lighters to do this, and I think, how hard can it be? I make a go of it and somehow end up stripping the skin of my fingers so completely off that my, immediately my entire hand is covered in blood. I hold it up to the mid-afternoon light and consider it for so long that a Spanish student comes over and, giving me an odd look, tries to help me clean myself. After the rape, I began obsessively to watch violent pornography. Although I had always been aroused by submission, porn had never held much interest for me before. Now I could not watch enough could watch for hours, fascinated. Anything which treated a woman as less than a human being was what I needed to see. It was good to hear the woman be verbally demeaned and physically restrained, but it was even better when they were literally dehumanized in some way. This was the point I would rewind and pause and come back to. It was sex without personhood, sex with what could only be a ghost, a stand-in, a cipher. I watched terrible, disturbing things. The more perverse and shameful, the better trying to climb inside the feeling I was getting. If the woman's body is less than, less than a person, it seemed to me, if the legitimacy of bodies is deniable, then whatever might be done to mine is irrelevant. And for years, I left my body alone in the world without me to protect it, because I no longer cared at all if it was hurt and by whom. I wake after dreaming of captivity and rape and blood all night, the taste of it still thick in my mouth when I come to and a handful of the real stuff spreading on the sheet binding me. The dream shakes me and I feel woozy with abstract pain all morning, moving vaguely over my heart like an unburst cloud. I try to always take note of this feeling when it comes over me. It's certainly pain, certainly nothing to do with happiness, but it's better than usual. Usual pain expresses itself in intense frustration, restlessness, involuntary repetitive physical activity, targetless rage. This pain feels like a force of God, something grand and inevitable happening to my insides at, at the pace nature intended it to. It feels like my heart is breaking or giving birth. Leaving London takes a long time. I miss my fight for no good reason on Sunday. I'm that sort of hungover that feels like you've been banged on the head and can't comprehend the dimensions of reality in any meaningful way. I felt placeless and completely alone and sick of the burden of guiding my body through the journey back. I wanted to have left it there with you, but it was becoming clear, as it always must, that you couldn't take care of it for me. I was so tired, and nobody knew where I was except you. And I knew suddenly that you didn't care where I was. It didn't matter. A man sitting opposite me on the train stared at me from the moment he got on. I was wearing a thin sweater and no bra, and he watched the movement of the train affect my breasts, and then stared intensely into my face as though trying to recognize me. I felt furious with him for looking at me when I did not feel like being looked at. I read my book feeling antsy and irritated, and then began to weep. It's because I read a passage describing the first kisses of two people about to fall in love. This is the last one. Now this is really the last one. And now this kiss is a goodnight kiss for that kiss. And I remember with a start what it's like for somebody to love me. The indescribable relief of not having to carry myself around all the time. I can't stop crying, and the man in the opposite compartment is still looking at me, and now I want him to be looking. I want him to see this. Good, I think. This is what you get for looking. The man stops staring at me to take a professional phone call. I gather that he is a doctor from the content, or perhaps that he has a job which would bore me to hear about, and he has faked this phone call to lead me and other passengers to believe he is a substantial man, which would not surprise me, 
In fact, it's exactly the kind of thing I would do. When I'm in a situation where I feel uncomfortable or unsafe, I always fake a phone call. In taxis and bars, whenever I'm, whenever I'm being regarded unwantedly, I do it to say, my body isn't for you, somebody else owns it. You might be looking, but there's nothing here. I'll pick up the phone with a smile, as though answering to somebody I'm in love with, and I'll fake a conversation with them, ask them about their day with a laugh in my voice, talk about where we'll eat dinner, and end by saying I love you. But not like how most people say it, just tagged onto the end of the sentence, automatically, but really meaning it. I love you, I love you. Trying to pour as much as I can of myself down into the empty phone. Thanks. Megan Nolan's website is meganolanwriting.tumblr.com. You can find more of her work there and we'll post links on our own sites. Our next guest is Jennifer Evans, uh, one of the most fantastic musical guests that we've ever had. Um, it's kind of hard to describe what Jennifer is like live. Um, I've struggled for l- like lots of different examples using you know PJ Harvey and other obvious reference points, but she is honestly one of the best and brightest musicians to come out of uh, Ireland and Dublin in a long time. Really, really hard to put your finger on um, her style of music. Uh, and also, like, she's only starting to come out with recordings that reflect her direction, do you know what I mean? Um, but you can check out her stuff on jenniferevans.ie. Um, she has an amazing review up on the line of Best Fit, which is a really influential music website. And if you get a chance to see her live, definitely do it. Uh, we tried our best to capture how amazing her performance was. Um, there's just like she's this small little girl and she's got an amazing voice and an amazing presence. It's not at all what you expect when you see her walk on stage and yeah. it's just it's unbelievable. I kind of felt like it must be overly dramatic, but I really felt like I was seeing the start of something really special. I can't wait to hear what her album sounds like. Yeah, no, it was a really fantastic performance. And when you're listening to uh, her performance uh, now, um, listen out for there's like a, a break where it sounds like the song is about to end and somebody kind of starts applauding and then she starts up again. And that was me. <laughs> was it really? Yeah, that was me. It was really you're embarrassing. such a wally. It, it did sound like the song was ending, and, I, and I, I was obviously very keen to be the first guy in there with the applause. And if you had less like time in your hands to try and be the kind of guy that should be clapping and just enjoyed the moment, then that wouldn't have happened. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a valuable lesson that night. Good. Um, Jennifer has released some music on the Delphi label, but uh, I would encourage you to check out her latest single. Like I said, her website is jenniferevans.ie. Uh, her latest single is called Bacchus, B-A-K-K-O-S. It's awesome. That's it. Here we go. Oh, mm-hmm. 
nice thing that happens in Ireland with English people I forget that they that they're English like that they sound English and in England I hear Irish people and I forget that you are Irish do you know does anyone else have that no <laughs> no does anyone know what I'm talking about no Keep your manners 
JenniferEvans.ie is the website where you can find out more about uh, Jennifer, hear her music, maybe see where she is playing near you uh, in the coming months and all that jazz. Uh, that, that, that performance was recorded in the 100 Club on Oxford Street in London. Uh, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank uh, the 100 Club for having us for three nights uh, last year uh, and also to Ray, uh, who looked after us uh, really well on the three nights uh, sound-wise and all that jazz. And also to Kevin Lynch uh, for his help with recording uh, on the nights as well. Uh, our next guest is, is an author who had to leave the country uh, during the recession, the country of Ireland, that is, and moved to San Francisco. Uh, and while she was there, she worked as a nanny, among other things, and uh, she wrote a wonderful uh, non-fiction book um, there about her experiences. But 
She has since moved back home to Ireland and is about to release her brand new novel. Uh, it's called Spare and Found Parts. It's published by Green Willow Books and it's coming out this October. And at our recent uh, launch night in Dublin, we were very lucky to have uh, Sarah Marie Griffin come along and give us a little preview of the book. Um, it's a book that she describes as a, uh, a cross between um, Children of Men and Frankenstein. And um, it sounds amazing. And she, she read us a little little couple of pieces on the night, and we've got them here for you now. Uh, it's it's a book, she'll explain it a bit more succinctly than, than I will, but it's it's basically, it's a book about, uh, about a woman who creates uh, a lover or a partner for herself and sort of tacitly gains ownership over that body. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, this is Sarah Marie Griffin, who uh, performed not long ago for us in Dublin. Hello, how's it going? Um, I'm really uh, delighted to be back at the uh, WGM, MGM. The last time I read at it was uh, the week before I emigrated, so it's, uh, it's a year since I've been home and it's really nice to be back. It's a terrific place to be involved with. Um, so it's funny that Edwin was talking about Frankenstein as well because last year, Last week, um, 16th of June, which is also Bloom's Day, is the 200th, was the 200th anniversary of a night that Mary Shelley had a really, really scary dream. Um, she was 19, and on the back of that, she invented science fiction. So, which is pretty, pretty, when I was 19, I had really bad dreams, and it's like, woke up and smoked a joint, so I don't know. Uh, she had a lot of fortitude, especially given that she was hanging out with, like, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and uh, Percy, Lord Byron, and all these terrifying people, so... Uh, yeah, this is a retelling of Frankenstein, I guess, this book, and I'm going to read you two pieces from it. Um, it's set in Ireland um, to 100 years in the future from now, after a large, terrifying incident wipes out a great deal of the population and leaves Dublin with something more resembling the crowd numbers of, like, electric picnic. So there's not many, well, there's a lot of people, but not as many as there used to be. So I'm going to read you two pieces from it. Um, I'm going to read you the prologue. Uh, and I'm going to read you a piece from, there's a second prologue, the book splits in two. Um, it's a story about a girl who builds herself a partner out of bits of scrap and a computer. So the novel starts off with three rules, um, like, like a video game. And I'll read you the rules and then I'll read you the prologue. Um, oh, it's called Spare and Found Parts. I always forget to tell people what it's called. <laughs> and that's, that's its name. Um, one, the sick in the pale, the healed in the pasture. Two, Contribute at all costs. Three, all code is blasphemy. The first part of the book is called Assembly. When you grow up, you'll never be sure if this happened or not. Never sure if it was just something your grief stitched together from the parts of her you remember and the questions still in your throat. Your doubt comes up against the image of her flickering behind your eyelids. This is the last time you see her. You've managed to steal up to her room, though you know it's bold to go up there, though you know she needs to be resting. You haven't been near her in so long. You'll rest with her, you think, climbing up into her bed and across the soft cotton plains. She laughs deep when she sees you, leans over, come here to me, come here to me, she is beautiful. She holds her hand up in front of your face, inches from your nose. At her fingertips, there are lights. Blinking green sparks, pinprick. She brings her touch to your face, cradles your cheek and your jaw. You feel small, hard lumps beneath the surface of her touch. Her skin, once warm, is now ash. There is green at the edge of your vision, green like a frog, green like leaves, green like nature, but unnatural rather, artificial instead. You have never seen these before. There are gaps where the teeth at the edges of her smile should be. Her eyes are still soft, if far away. A green pinprick flickers above the arch of her left eyebrow. Her hair is wrapped in a scarf, escaped black tendrils here and there. Her lips are chapped. Your cheeks are wet with tears. She thumbs them away. Don't cry for me, Penelope. She sings, rhythmic, lullaby. Don't cry for me. A strange light sits in the center of her chest, a bigger one, round as a penny. It sits a strange jewel amid chalky scar tissue. It doesn't flicker, but rather flashes, framed by the softness of her nightshirt. Her veins are risen and pattern her skin, tiny black rivers. There is nothing to be sad about. I am so happy. 
She's whispering, she's laughing. I wish you could hear the things I hear. I have spoken to electric gods. You will too, I know it. Her finger is hard on your jaw now, it starts to hurt. You will find a way, your cut of my cloth, girl. Her voice is thick. You climb over the duvet landscape to her lap and she cradles you. You put your ear to her chest, looking for warmth, listening for a heartbeat. There is none. A hiss comes from under her skin, a static thrum. She smells like burning, like copper. Can you hear the machines, Nell, she whispers to you. Can you hear what I hear? They tell me you'll do great things. They tell me I am dying, but that my questions live on in you. Who are they, you ask? They have voices like falling stars, she says, her hand on her chest. Who are they, you ask again. Your mother holds her hand above your face, sparks in her fingerprints, filaments alive. The questions, you started already. A door swings open, you are lifted away. They argue, your man, your dad. Don't be talking to her when you're like this. You'll poison her worse than she is already, he says, and she swears at him. She's more like me than you. She has my eyes. And you're out into the hallway, down the stairs, in his arms, floods of tears, green still at the corner of your vision, green like the parkland, green like poison, like electricity, green like go. That's Nell, and uh, where we begin with her. Her father is the inventor of the biomechanical limb, which saves much of the, pop the remaining electric picnic-sized population of Ireland from, uh, well, which helps them uh, after the epidemic that wiped the rest out of the country uh, scarred the living population. I'm sorry if I'm not doing a very good job explaining this. Every time I start talking about science fiction aloud, I'm like, this makes you sound like a crazy person. <laughs> Basically, Nell, Nell builds a robot and uh, android creature. And this next, this last bit that I'm going to read you is his first waking moments. Um, his name is Io. I wish I could find where I'd mark that page. Pardon me, you can cut that silence. <laughs> the second half of the book is called Alive. So it's assembly and alive. There is warm. This is the first thing I know for sure. Awakeness pools at the base of my neck. The rest of my anatomy assembles behind what are most definitely my eyes. I've been given a body or something like one. My clock says a second has passed. My first second. In the second second, I take stock of my body. I have two hands, two palms, two thumbs, eight digits. In them, I feel everything they have ever touched before me. Their electricity holds an imprint so deep that there are reams of history in them. I feel heartache, struggle. I feel smoke cloying at my fingertips. I feel the dying fire beneath me. When the third second dawns, my eyes open, both at once, and I know almost everything they have seen, from the tongues of the glass blower to the clavicle of the last man they loved. Love, there it is in every fiber of me. Lights fill the cavity in my head. I see the room where I have been born. Love, there is a ceiling above me, my first blink. Love, I suddenly know so much and so little all at once. Before the fifth second splinters open, there you are, there, standing above me. You look frightened and tired. I know you already, but I do not know you at all. You must be the one who switched me on. You must be the one who placed these parts together, gathered them, sculpted them. You must have drawn me from your own mind. You all fear now, all exhilaration. Your eyes locked with mine. I see all of you, more horror and hurt and raw fight than anything these glass and wire eyes have met in either of their lives before. You are a marvel, your mouth hanging open. Outside this room is a roar of a storm and someone else's panic, but you are so still. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, then you speak, your voice is a whisper, but with a bright streak of pride. You say hello. Language emerges from my numbers. I am all alphabet now, all punctuation, all permutations of 26 letters and the sounds that match them. I want to sing all the letters at once and hear what my voice sounds like if I have one. The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. You say hello. Five letters, English, hotel, echo, lima, lima, Oscar, eta, epsilon, lambda, lambda, omicron. There's a bunch of ones and zeros which read hello in code. I say hello. Shocked by my voice, you raise your hands to your mouth, your hand, one of two, flesh. You use them to make me. You have small knuckles and wear bright rings. Your breathing is papery. Now there are tears all down your cheeks. I want to say, please do not cry, but I am not here to tell you what to do. You have not yet told me why I am here. You have only said hello. Hello. 
I do not know what you are called by birth or by others. Are there others? What became of them? I know what these eyes last saw, what these hands last touched. The things I do not know herald the end of my first minute like an icy wave. The weight of I do not know. My first question blooms fat in me like a ripe flower and it is out of my mouth before I can stop it. Are you my mother? You gasp and you wait for your breath to settle. You are frightened and you have won. No, you say no how vast these two letters are, how suddenly they arrive into the world, the end of every story. But you speak again. This time the terror flashes to fire in your human throat. I am your maker, you say. I open my eyes again and love. This is love. Your hand is wrapped around mine. This is what it is to be alive. Thank you. Bear and Found Parts is published by Green Willow Books on the 4th of October 2016. We would encourage you to buy many copies. Actually, that's kind of nearly good timing for Christmas. They probably thought that. That's are, you, are you that organised that you're buying your Christmas presents in October? No, but this is the year to start. Okay, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Weekly General Meeting. Um, all of the details of our guests will be available on our website theweeklygm.com and on our Twitter at theweeklygm this is really good uh, and our Facebook uh, slash theweeklygm and on our phone numbers oh, oh okay. nearly got, got you there. there nearly got you alright well um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> hope you enjoyed this make sure you um, if you like it tell your friends and uh, rate and uh, and review the episodes on iTunes yes please do and uh, yeah help us get out there to a few, a few more people Every yeah. week, that'd be great. And if you don't like it, just don't listen to it. There's plenty of other podcasts out there. Or other things to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Think about how many podcasts there are and then multiply that by what, at three. least ten. Or, oh, oh don't. Spit the difference. That's how many other things there are to do. See ya! <laughs> yeah, well, uh, okay. Well, uh, to play us out uh, today, we have one more song from the wonderful Jennifer Evans. Talk to you next week.
protect me too much from its jaws. I wish to sink far down if I'm caught. No one will care about my state of health or if I've had it tough. A minute, we a dream gone away. All that was tender will have to change. Most base referees spread like a garden feast. There's no rush to the threat. The ache rush to the Oh, <laughs>